welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Levin, a.k.a. Elana Brooklyn. This is a podcast for people who wonder if the Doom Patrol will be the superhero team to take on the climate apocalypse, or if their powers are limited to defeating really weird rain, like when it rains fish or refrigerators. That's right. We're talking about Doom Patrol, the new TV series based on a cult classic comic series made famous by folks like Grant Morrison, Rachel Pollack, Gerard Way, and Nick Darrington. Uh, the series is exclusively available on DC Entertainment's streaming platform, DC Universe. And oh God, does this mean you need to sign up for another service? Well, answering that is one of the reasons we're taping this episode so early in the season to help you decide if you want to subscribe in the first place. Is it worth the uh, like eight bucks a month plus, which does also give you access to a big archive of DC content, including the comics like Doom Patrol that I know I've been enjoying a great deal. Uh, but is it worth a subscription? My guests and I are here to help you decide if you want to watch Doom Patrol and to dig deep into the meaning of the TV series and maybe reflect on the comics that inspired it. We've just finished watching episode two, and the first part of this podcast will be spoiler free. Uh, I'll announce when the spoiler time begins. So I'm extremely excited to bring on two new guests for this show. Uh, John Arminio is a dedicated comic book nerd, cinephile, and metalhead, frequently a guest on the Wrong Real podcast. He pursues his geeky passions by working at Comics Connection in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, where he fights against entropy by selling physical comics and books in 2019. You can find him making dumb jokes and saying nice things about comics, movies, and podcasts at Quasar Sniffer on Twitter and Instagram. And John and I actually met while uh, delivering lectures on shock rock at Kevin Geeks Out. Hello, John. Oh, that was great. Uh, it's great to be here, Lana. Thank you. What was that? I said it was great, the the Kevin Geeks Out show. It was, it was. And thank you for joining me. You know, my, my um, also, joining, also joining me is my first comics friend. No joke, going way back to high school. Seriously, before we met, I was strictly reading Marvel Comics and Sandman. Uh, Mark has truly broadened my comics horizons. Mark was the Virgil to my Dante in comics hell. And that is Mark Argent. Mark is a, is a most singular they, living in Baltimore, Maryland, with a housemate and two cats, and posting primarily about comics, tabletop games, gender, left-leaning politics, the communities surrounding those things, and other things that alternate between bringing them great joy and deep disappointment at Mark underscore Argent. Hi, Mark. Hi, hi, Alana. It is it is great to be here. I'm so sorry uh, for having pulled you into comics hell like this, uh, but I'm I'm really proud of what you've done with it. So, oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm I'm flattered because I basically do nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. I actually enjoyed your insights and conversation we were having around okay. a number of series. So. For our listeners, who are the Doom Patrol, the world's strangest heroes? As a team of misfit heroes, hated and feared by those they protected, led by a genius who uses a wheelchair, and did I just describe the X-Men? Well, I did, but this is also a perfect description of Doom Patrol. The two series were released within months of each other in 1963. Must have been something in the nuclear age water. That was writers Arnold Drake and Bob Haney and artist Bruno Premiani, who created the initial series. And now it's time to dig into the good stuff. So how are each of you enjoying the show? John, what are, what are you thinking? Um, I, I like the show. Um, I was kind of expecting um, 
a very sort of kind of crass, uh, R-rated, c- kind of gleefully profane uh, exe- kind of exploitation of these characters and their faults and their kind of uh, sexual pro- proclivities, which I think the opening scenes with uh, Robot Man kind of indulge in, but I was pleasantly surprised that it seems to take the characters seriously and give them moments of pathos. Uh, so that uh, very much impressed me. Um, it's it's a, a little cheesy and over the top, but I also love um, Timothy Dalton and Alan Tudyk's performances. They're outstanding. And we finally get a cyborg we can root for, so that's cool. <laughs> this is true. Tim who? Oh, Timothy Dalton. Yeah, totally, totally. Mark, what, what do you think about the show so far? Okay, well, uh, I am coming at it. I'm going to present the other side of it, which is, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think the show is... uh, So I enjoyed the show, but that does not mean it is a good show. Uh, I think it's a mess. I think the cast is far too good uh, for what they've been given. Uh, They're doing a great job with uh, some very ham-handed scripts that are inconsistent in terms of both tone and continuity, and that makes it fun to watch, but by no means is it good. Uh, I believe the show evinces multiple rewrites, revisions, and even total re-envisionings within the course of a single episode, and I think it boils down to having two conflicting creative mandates. Make the hot, sexy, sharp, cool, weird version that people actually enjoyed, versus make the Silver Age version that can be scaled up and down the demographic ladder for marketing purposes. Uh, Mm. So, like, you have the character you have these characters from the 1990s grant morrison version uh you know you have the villain mr nobody of the brotherhood of dada and you have crazy jane uh she of 64 different personalities and each with a separate power set uh and then you have the silver age characters uh you have uh, Robot Man, uh, Negative Man, Larry Trainer, and Elastigirl Rita Farr. And uh, none of these are bad characters, and none of them are bad portrayals of these characters, but it is, it feels like a mismatch in a bunch of places. Um, and mm. it feels like some of it was kind of mandated, like it's got to have Crazy Jane and Mr. Nobody, but you can't have Rebus, the uh, inter- the magical intersex person, because that's way too gay, but you can make Larry gay because a gay test pilot is still manly, and oh yeah, it has to have a Teen Titan in it because the Doom Patrol has a Teen Titan in it. Uh, it's got to be weird and surreal, but not too literary or artsy, so replace the reference to anything that might require a trip to Wikipedia with Deadpool-esque fourth wall breaking and CGI donkey fart skywriting. And here we come back to the whole crassness thing. Because mm. uh, crass is fine. The surrealists c- could be crass. Duchamp put a urinal in the, in, in the museum, but this is over-the-top Garth Ennis crass. Um, mm. And it feels out of place. Um, and there are heavy themes in Doom Patrol, uh, especially in terms of mental illness and gender and sexuality. And I, and from what I've seen so far, I don't feel like this team can handle it. Um, so that's that's where I am on this. Uh, it's a fun, light little show, and it's not good enough. And you were saying that you felt like people who enjoyed this should actually just be reading the comics. Yeah, like if you if you 
start watching this show and you fall in love with these characters, if you fall in love with uh, with Crazy Jane, and geez, Diane Guerrero as Crazy Jane is really easy to fall in love with. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just ditch the show and go to the comics. You've already got the DC Universe subscription. Just switch tabs to the comics tab and start reading. So for me, I, I, I came at the series having read the beginning of the Gerard Way Nick Darrington comics run, which I enjoyed a lot, but uh, I have enjoyed more upon second reading after I read, uh, I, I read like the beginning of the Grant Morrison uh, like run. I have not read the whole thing, but I've read the beginning of it. Um, I have enjoyed the show more in light of my familiarity with the characters, although I don't think it's required. I've, no, absolutely me, not. Yeah, yeah. For me though, like, it's all been very good to experience it contemporaneously and complementarily. So I think like watching the show while reading the material could be the way to go for new folks. I like the show, but I could, and I really like the show actually, I could totally see myself eventually having my heart broken for it because of the things that it does have to do delicately that Mark pointed to. Like there is a ton of really heavy thinking about gender and disability and bodies in particular that it would be very easy for the show to fuck up. And to me so far, it hasn't done that yet, but it certainly could. And I'm sitting here being like, gee, I really hope this doesn't fuck up because I don't feel like it has so far. It totally could, but it hasn't. So far for me, I've really loved it. Um, So I'm, I'm on team like, this could be really good, guys. Hold, hold on to your hats. Maybe, maybe. But, you know, it's still a DC TV. And I'm, they could, yeah. you know, they, they could they could do uh, all kinds of things still that would be bad at this point. So Just on the most, I, I don't want to hog too much time here, but mo- just on the most basic level, like, I feel like they're leaning really heavily into the portrayal of mentally ill people as belligerent with how crazy jane just keeps keeps being the the source of conflict the source of conflict in, between the characters she keeps screwing things up for everybody and i don't like that i don't hmm. like you know cuz I, it, that is the that is the fallback position for portrayals of mentally ill characters. It's uh, it's you know this is the screw up. This is the person who walks into the minefield, who dives into the you know the the end, the bottomless uh, cosmic hole uh, generated by a donkey fart. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but I think that Jane also the, like what you're seeing is true. Mm-hmm. But Crazy Jane also acts as a catalyst and mm-hmm. a speaker of truth. Mm-hmm. So the story wouldn't oh, exist sure. without Which her shaking Which is another trope. Up. Which is another this, mentally yeah, ill and it's a illness true. trope. I mean, you, it, but, you know, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, I guess. I mean, she, it wouldn't be good for her to just sort of be like this passive victim. Yeah. And she's not that. No, um, And she not. is the person who makes people question what is happening to them. Yeah. And, like, they needed that because... Or that the three that the the big three are pretty passive. Yes, they are exactly. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I would say that for me, the big draws of the show thus far are the performances, which are to a person mm-hmm. excellent. The art direction, which is actually what hooked mm-hmm. me in the first place, when I saw that first clip of the Doom Patrol's appearance on the Titans show, I was like, "Oh, this looks gorgeous. Maybe I need to check this out." Um, the art direction really is really very well thought out, top notch. 
everything from the color tones of the different flashbacks versus the different uh, characters and scenes is very well thought out. The cinematography is very strong. Um, and then uh, as later has been revealed, the music has been spot on and has used, I am really sensitive about like who deserves to use what song for what purpose <laughs> because I have such strong feelings about a lot of the music. And um, you know, the, the fact that the show pulled off and I'll, I'll go, we'll go into why once we get into the spoiler section, the fact that the show pulled off using a Bowie song off of black star so yeah. soon after his death yeah. to me speaks to the intelligence of the show um, just say, you know, I don't think any of us have been watching Titans, right? I watched no. the... I, I, I tried to watch the Doom Patrol episode in full. Yeah, I did watch that episode, yes. Yeah, and ended up fast-forwarding through most of the Titans parts because it really is kind of abysmal. Let's, uh, like, it, it, for all the for the complaints I have about Doom Patrol, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a, it, you know, it's Oscar quality compared to... <laughs> compared to titans and that that really again that really does rely on the performances there is nothing to complain about there for me yeah i i don't hate the titan show but but i think of it the way the same way i think of it as green arrow like oh it's just not for me like it but but the the cast in doom patrol is to a person far far better than anybody in in titans Uh, Mm -hmm. so and and mark i all of your criticisms of Doom Patrol, I agree with. Mm-hmm. It just didn't make me want to angrily turn it turn it off. Oh, sure, it didn't make me <laughs> yeah, want it, to yeah. angrily turn it off either. Because, like I said, I enjoyed watching the show, uh, and I, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a particular bitch. Like, let's not, I don't want to, I don't want to fuck around with that. I can be very, I am extremely particular about television. I want, so. So the if, threshold for you threshold to decide a show is, is worth very high. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so take, I, I feel, I should have presented that much earlier that I can yeah, be a fine. really, no problem. that I can be a really particular <laughs> bitch about television. Before uh, we get to spoilers, okay. I want to say one last thing, which is that, uh, watching the, the, uh, I've been watching Young Justice Outsiders uh, during DC on DC Unlimited, which has also very much validated my subscription to DC Unlimited or DC Universe, whatever the hell they're calling it. Um, the Doom Patrol related episode of Young Justice season three is wonderful and hilarious. And I highly recommend folks watching that. If you are enjoying this show and haven't watched Young Justice, you could actually just watch that episode and still get a kick out of it. Yes. Uh, so with that in mind, Oh, well, actually, I do have a. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I do have one mm-hmm. one thing. What mm-hmm. has been your experience with this service in general? Because when I try to watch anything, and I've tried to watch Young Justice, Batman the Animated Series, because I wanted something for the back catalog, and also Doom Patrol, and I'm using this on a laptop, not a big screen, and it's the same device that I use Netflix and, and Amazon streaming on, it buffered at once a minute. Yes. It's just infuriating to use. So I don't know if either of you had that experience or if my geographic location makes that the case. But like, if you're just buying this app for the streaming content, it is not worth it for that reason. Um, 
I used, I watched it, uh, so I've, I actually watched both episodes of this twice. I watched, uh, mm-hmm. I watched in bed, uh, on my iPad, and it was, it was pretty smooth. I didn't have the buffering problems, uh, that you referred to, but I tried streaming it out from that iPad to my Chrome, to my first-gen Chromecast, uh, on, on the big screen, and it does not like it when you switch to other apps, like say your text editor when you're trying to take notes for a podcast <laughs> that you're going to do about the show that you're watching. So uh, that caused some that caused some problems. Had to restart the app a couple few couple few more times. Uh, yeah, uh, and I. By all reports, from what I've read, uh, the application is the application. The website is a freaking nightmare. Like for streaming purposes, kind of, kind of a highly variable experience. Tending yeah, I had the same problem. I had the same problems as Mark. I would just say that um, I have found it less irritating to use than the Marvel Unlimited. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I had problems. I had problems watching. Um, the streaming video content on my TV and less wa- and less of a problem watching it on my laptop. So um, I'm curious to see how tech support is because my big beef with Marvel Unlimited was that there was no tech support. Uh, so I'm curious to see if um, how the tech support is for this. I did email them about a problem I was having that turned out to be uh, turned out to exist between user and device. Um, it wasn't it wasn't their problem, but they were pretty responsive. They got back to me pretty quickly. Sorry. Okay, everybody, spoilers. let's get started with the spoiler section. Um, spoilers. Yeah. Okay, spoilers. So I broke this down sort of into a few sections because most of what we have to work with right now are the characters mm-hmm. and a little bit about music and art direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to sort of start from where we begin on this, which is with uh, our narrator, who is Alan Tudyk as Negative Man. No, no, um, Al- as not negative. Mr. Sorry, sorry, as Mr. <laughs> Thank Nobody. You, Mr. Nobody. Important um, distinction, and, and yes. possibly confuse. Suddenly realize that it may be confusing for an audience. With the names uh, being so similar. Yeah. But then, and but what if they incorporate the Doom Patrol villains, the Nowhere Men? Oh, geez, even worse. You have all three yeah, in, all in one show. We're redoomed. Yeah. So, um, so, the, so we have this, the show opens with a genre-savvy narrator, which can be really irritating at times as a conceit. Uh, I did laugh at some of the genre-savvy narrator's jokes, but um, I don't know. I think that that can often be a cop-out for storytelling. Um, but, yeah, that's performed by Alan Tudyk, a.k.a. Wash of Firefly. Um I do think he did a great job, as we've said, uh, but he kind of pops up again and sort of narrates things. And I don't know what folks think about him and about the narration. Um, he's he gives a good performance. Uh, I don't I don't have a problem with his narration, possibly until later. Um, I I think uh, you know I think the fourth wall breaking has been mostly ruined for me by Deadpool. Mm-hmm. Um, or Spider-Man with GI Joe swords. Um, so, <laughs> like, but but I think again, perf- performance saves the material. People's performances in this show save the material. So it's easy to forgive, uh, you know, something that coming from a lesser a, a lesser performer. Uh, you know, it's good that he chews the scenery. It's good that he's kind of over the top. 
uh, mm -hmm. villainous that he knows he's the villain and runs with it because um, it, 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 it saves something that might otherwise be a little more kind of ham-handed as I, as I said yeah, I think um, as much as Alan Tudyk is known to you know the nerd community uh, like us as Wash from Firefly, I think he's forever going to be underrated as a voice actor. Like he is he's remarkable. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, the way he can disguise his voice and utilize it as a tool of of his acting, I think, is yeah. really extraordinary. And so, uh, you know, even when you don't see his face, whether he's in this or whether he's in Star Wars or or what have you. Um, it's yeah. just really impressive. So if, it, yeah, if it was almost anybody else, that dialogue would kind of be unlistenable. But because it's him, it's I find I find it rather funny. Like yeah. I actually laughed at his yeah. line about the only people watching this are DC fans. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The only people watching that. What was it again? Uh, Grant Morrison fans, uh, angry redditors, and uh, the three people who stayed on after the donkey fart. Yeah, yes. I, I laughed at yeah. that. Which that is, was okay. That was. So speaking of uh, acting, I, one of the things I thought was interesting about the show is that it feels like it incorporates the meta story of a few of the actors' real lives into subtext of the text in interesting ways. Um, we'll talk about what that means for uh, for Larry Trainer in a moment, but I want to kick off with Robot Man. This is mm -hmm. the triumphant return of Brandon Fraser, who we recently learned was missing from. Uh, entertainment industry for a while because he was sexually assaulted it, and like his interview with Variety or I don't remember where it first uh, was but he talked I read the GQ interview like yeah, just yeah. a That's couple days was. before uh, reading this and it was it floored me like yeah it's terrible what he had to, what he endured yeah. and like when he tried to speak out about him getting like really groped by a powerful person in the industry the um, foreign press associations like president at the time sexually assaulted him like people were just like yeah 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 whatever you know this isn't a thing that happens to men we don't care about what happened to you let's just move on from here and i, I know I, I know this is a whole other cliff that we could jump off of but i think you know in the wake of the oscars yeah brian singer keeps getting to make movies um <laughs> And so he's beloved by our by our nerd tribe for that yeah. matter. And yeah. And so the fact that we're willing to as an entertainment industry sort of like ignore sexual assaults when when the victims are you know people of color victims or men or or, or, or gay young, men like it's young men. It's mm -hmm. yeah. really disgusting. And so uh I'm glad that Brendan Fraser's back, but because also, you know, even separate from that, I think in that same interview, he talked about how many injuries he suffered on the mummy films and how he oh, had to yeah. like get spinal surgery. And so to yes. go through all this like physical and mental like anguish, like, so it's good to see him uh, be a robot and drive cars now. So. I mean, but that's the thing, right? So like he's a robot who drives cars because of the brutality that happened to his body yes, yes. through work. So it's like his personal story of having his body be physically broken and having his consent being removed by sexual assault is mirrored by the story. Like robot man has his brain put into a robot body without his consent. He has his life story being denied and manipulated by a powerful white man who tells him what he experienced and what he didn't, regardless of the truth. And he has like this experience of having to like relearn how to walk and relearn how to inhabit his body. And it mirrors what happened to him in real life. The most direct parallel is 
when um, Crazy Jane as Hammerhead first meets him, she grabs his crotch, which is basically what happened to Brandon Fraser in real life. Um, and what's really powerful is later when she's in a different personality, Crazy Jane apologizes for doing that to him. In most shows where a woman inappropriately touches a man, it's played for laughs and just brushed off as no big deal. But this show shows that it's a violation and it's not okay and takes it seriously. And I'm sure that Brandon Fraser's personal experience of having been groped informed that decision. And it's a really important thing. And it just is like fucking brilliant. Like that's really I, creepy, I, Alana. He could have. I mean, he could have. He could have done all these things. I mean, I know without having to have been suffered for it. I'm not saying he needs to have yeah. suffered in those ways to act this. But boy, is it like going raw for him to do this? Yeah, totally. And I, I think it's also really interesting that the show chose to include Cyborg. Like, I, I know he's not a Doom Patrol member in, in the comics, but I, but I think his inclusion in here as sort of a mirror There's image to be Robot a Teen Man. Yes, mm-hmm. clearly. But um, <laughs> uh, but I think the fact that, you know, Vic had his own agency taken away from him, but in this case by his father, but I think seeing Cyborg dive into that role as a superhero almost gleefully and sort of take it on as his own sort of personal mission, like he has a lot of issues with his dad, clearly, but I think he's been able to adjust to this role as a cyborg much more fully than Robotman has for a lot of reasons, especially not both mentally and the technology kind of put upon him. But to see he, to see Robotman have to see Cyborg, um, who's except, who's much younger but also much more put together for the world to come, I think is um, a really interesting choice by the show. Yeah, and we the, when you were saying that, I, you you have to wonder how much, you know, by the end of the second episode, you do wonder how much of Cyborg's uh, ability to adapt to that role and, like, you know, jumping in with both feet, how much of that is him? How much of, mm. how much of it is, uh, how much of, of it is Vic and how much of it is Silas? How much, you know, how much yeah. of any of this is Vic? Uh, I really think I his think dad Vic is thinks abusive. Oh yes, oh, clearly. The, the 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 adult men, you know, the authority figures in this show are extremely abusive, extremely manipulative. Like whether it's uh, whether it's Silas's, uh, you know, straight up programming his son, or uh, or or uh, Niles's, uh, you know, Munchau- almost Munchausen by proxying mm-hmm. all three of the big three. Uh, you know, I just wanted to protect you. Uh, you know, it, it, you know the stuff you were saying about White Diamond the other week in in your Steven Universe cast. It's very similar. You know, all mm. I wanted was the best for you, and now you went and screwed it all up, and we have to now we have to run from the bigger threat. Uh, you know, it's it's terrible. <laughs> These guys are terrible. I mean, one thing I'll give to the script is the cyborg's line, you may know who I am, but you don't know shit about me. Mm -hmm. I was like, I I think that that is the 
summary of Cyborg's personality in, when he's written well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With his dialogue with his dad. Like yeah. in this, in comics and in the show. Like yeah. I really give them credit for that line. Yeah. J- yeah. Javon Wade gives me such a community era Donald Glover vibe. Like, mm. I mean, maybe it, he's just really at ease and has that goofy smile. Uh, you know, the same kind of goofy smile Donald Glover had in, in when, you know, as playing Troy. It feels really like there's that really welcoming uh, feel to him. He's really good. I do get that, but I really saw him, especially at the end of the second episode when he's talking to Rita Farr, he's coming into the the fold as a leader. Yeah. Because he says to Rita, who's, you know, who we haven't even mentioned so far, is, you know, a, 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 we'll a former, a former uh, 50s era Hollywood actress who's now sometimes transforms into Globe a Globe nominee. Yeah. That was one of the best lines <laughs> of the show. Yes, absolutely. Um, but when when Cyborg tells her you were a star today, that was the exact mm-hmm. thing she needed to hear in that moment. Mm-hmm. And whether he believed it or not, he knew those the words she needed to hear. And so as a yeah. leader, he is expertly equipped to deal with these very damaged people because he's uh very damaged. Yeah, he he knows what it is to be damaged. So I, yeah. I I really like his performance, especially in that moment. There are things you know I I've said ham-handed now three times in the show, and there are things that are very ham-handed in this show. But I think there might also be things that are very subtle, uh, and and I I really want to be able to give them the credit for like mirroring certain uh, certain lines. Like uh, you know the the when Rita says we need you know has to do the bag scene and she goes we need to set some ground rules and then that's echoed later on with Larry uh, and the negative spirit. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if that's the problem is because there's so much other clunky stuff. I don't know if that's deliberate or if these are if they just have a limited number of stock phrases that as writers they're capable of or allowed to use. So I'm looking, I just, you just got to keep watching to see if they're any good or not, I guess. So let's talk about Robot Man um, a little mm. bit more. I, I, the introduction where the narrator is saying, this all starts with like an ass. And he's like, no, not that ass. And he's like, you know, it's not the ass of his wife. It's like Brandon Fraser's ass. And there's this weird dialogue between him and the nanny. He's, he's, he's fucking where he's like saying who's the fox, who's the fox? and she's who's like you fox? are and then in that in the and then in the racing scene they're playing fox on the run by sweet which is such a good song that i love so you, um, you i saw in your notes that you caught that i did not catch that at all that's your genre that's oh uh, yeah <laughs> like i'm gonna have one of those for you later, though. <laughs> yeah. um you know and i was just like oh gosh so he it's interesting like he's the fox who's on the run He's like running from his life as it existed, um, and he's like, it's it, it was an interesting because like that's not who's a, it's not a thing you shout during sex generally in my right. in, in, in my experience <laughs> and personal observations of cinema as well. So it was very it's a very stylized choice, and I yeah. I did laugh at the joke in that. I appreciate the fact that he really does care about his daughter and that the problem is with his relationship with his wife. Um, and but then he's a complete piece of shit and an asshole, and he's you know struggling with that, and you know but the whole theme of like him trying to demand his bodily integrity in his relationship between uh, him and the chief, and the way you know like 
your body being used without your consent is such a and losing control over it is is such a thing. I mean, I think the one it's a repeated the one, theme in the show yeah, in the in yeah. across the characters. They have all yeah. lost across all of the all the characters and the chief. They have all in some sense lost control of their bodies, lost uh, you know the integrity and the you know what we you know what we consider human form. One of the things that I the one good thing about the about Doom Patrol and Titans was listening to Robot Man asking Raven to describe her experience of eating the food that they have at dinner. That was and an the, excellent scene. Yes. In, in an, the, yeah. Yeah. The, the intimate the details scenes in that episode mm. are worth going to watch. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Worth watching. Yeah, because that yes, that scene it. definitely made me think of the comics because there mm-hmm. is a big through line of Robot Man trying to feel again in the Grant Morrison run and going to great lengths sometimes to the detriment of the Doom Patrol to discover ways that he can actually feel and experience emotions the way he did as a, as a human uh, so I'm, I'm glad that the writers at least have that in mind going forward let's talk about Larry because Larry Trainer, because I have a feeling that we're going to have the most to say about Larry of any of the characters what? yeah um, I think there's a fair, fair, fair assumption there. I, um, I, I, you know, I love Larry Trainer in the Doom Patrol, um, Young Animal comic. You know, I feel like we're probably all hoping that at some point the story acknowledges like Rebus as yeah. a thing uh, in the story that like that Larry. Oh, I don't know. Let's start by talking about Larry Trainer. So, you know, like the establishing shots of him as sort of this like as you know he's this test pilot and he's performing his masculinity traditionally with his family and then this horrific thing happens to him and this is the first time i'd made this connection before but like larry trainer is hal jordan as horror yeah all these all these characters from like this all these silver age characters who are like test pilots and race car drivers and like manly adventurers yeah and they they all there's a limited there's you know astronauts and uh you know the you know astronauts in the fantastic four and again bodily integrity being uh being violated but uh that's probably a whole nother podcast um (laughs) but yeah it's totally it's it's totally Hal Jordan and I uh, as as horror and I think in in the comics you know in the DCU as a whole I'm pretty sure sh- that's probably been acknowledged at one point or another uh, that may have Keith Giffen who's an unsung uh master historian of DC comics uh here here did a run of Doom Patrol in the mid 2000s that I swear touched on that like it was around the new 52 era uh, when it when uh, when he and Morrison were doing their magic with like un, with, you know the great unified field of the DCU, and I feel like that must have been acknowledged somewhere that like they knew each other at some point. Um, but it is weird. It's weird to me to see that 1950s like uh, hero archetype used and to put it in the 1950s in the show. And that time span, like, yeah, it's been, that was that was something that bothered me. I had talked about continuity errors earlier. It, I had trouble reconciling that, and it mm. really threw me out of the. It, that was one of the things that threw me out of the show. Just to yeah, be clear, it's early sixties. Er, okay, early sixties. So like, Sorry. so a fifty, fifty, yeah, fifty yeah. to fifty-five year time span. 
Uh, but Rita as well was Rita in the 50s or the 60s? Rita's in the 50s. Rita's in the 50s. So yeah, across mm-hmm. the three of them, it's a long, it's several decades. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and when, uh, when, when Jane said something, the, uh, when, when uh, Cliff asks Jane, how long have you been here? Or how long have you been busting the chief's balls? Longer than you've been here. He's been here since 1998 and you're like 12. What? What's... Yeah. Yeah, that's... She says that's, it's been since the 70s. So what? They, each one of them comes from a different decade. Like Rita's right, from the 50s, yes. Larry's from the 60s, Jane is from the 70s. No, Robot Jane's from the, from the 90s. 80s. No, I thought she said the 70s. Did she Did she say from the 70s? I think she said from the 70s, even though the character's from the 90s. <sighs> and she looks very 90s. I'm pretty sure she said from the 70s. Um, which, and then... Is... and then. This is Robot one of those Man things that that really threw me on the on the sh- on the, that on that pilot episode and like really, uh, you know, it is it is one of the signs of having been through development hell for you know a script having been around <laughs> for a really long time. Yeah, uh, I, sorry. I think so. As as great as a scene was where Larry taped a note to the mirror that says we need to set some ground rules to communicate with a negative entity. We're in year, you know, like fifty something of him be having a relation, a sharing a body with an alien being, and this is the first time he's setting ground rules. Like what? The, the first time he's really trying to communicate with it. Yeah, it, it seems like that could, should have happened, you know, by like week two. For like, that matter, you'd hope. But it's about being closeted. It's been 50 years. Has the chief really shielded him and Rita from reality that long that he doesn't know it's okay to be gay in public? Possibly, because the chief is abusive as hell. Yeah, like, that is a, that, I I hope that's a thing that gets addressed later, but I don't have the confidence that it will be. Uh, But, you know, hope springs eternal. So, um, So, you know, Larry Trainer is, you know, closeted, much like he's been hiding his physical form, hiding his powers and hiding himself away for literally decades. Um, I, you know, in the comics, Larry Trainer, with the beginning of the Grant Morrison run, uh, becomes an entity called Rebus, which is, uh, as they say, an alchem- alchem- alchemical, alchemical, as an alch- marriage yes. of male and female. Alchemy being like the process in which base substances are transformed to produce gold, um, in the fictional science of our past. And, you know, I was like, I'm hoping that at some point we do get to see Rebus because what a fascinating non-binary character we could have. Uh, and then I'm like, yeah, but they cast Matt Boomer, who is absolutely not trans in any way. But we have a longstanding history of Matt <laughs> Boomer, who is a gay actor, getting cast as trans characters in real life. So that's the meta story about Matt. <laughs> so as a non-binary person, I value the character of Rebus a lot. Rebus was actually pretty instrumental for me in my uh, in my journey, in my gender journey. and uh, And like... I am torn between hoping we see Rebus on screen that, that, you know, negative man becomes Rebus at some point that we see the alchemical marriage and not wanting, uh, not wanting the integrity of the character that they've all, that they are working on creating, uh, val- uh, violated, uh, cause they obviously want to do something with Larry Trainer as closeted gay test pilot hero from the 50s. Um, and let's face it, uh, without 
unfortunately, without being a closeted gay test pilot hero from the 50s, there is not a whole lot to Negative Man or Larry Trainer, uh, historically speaking. Like, he didn't get weird. Like, they restored him to being Larry after being Rebus, uh, chronologically speaking, and he did not get weird until he was, until after Rebus. So, like, hmm. they... We'll see where they we you know we I, I reserve judgment. We'll see where they go with it. Um, I don't think you know it, I I don't want to think that like this crew thinks that making making the character gay is the equivalent of making them non-binary or intersex. Um, but again, I don't fee, I'm not sure this particular creative team uh, doesn't think that or has the capacity to not think that has the capacity to think that uh complexly so we'll see um but yeah the it's a different character from what they're showing regardless uh, rebus is a character in the comics who's black and white right yeah rebus encompasses both a a, marriage of multiple opposites yeah yeah. Um, so, but let's let's pretend that Rebus doesn't happen in the show yeah, because the, the show Rebus is like is I don't un- I don't understand things that aren't binary gender. Yeah. Um, but the uh, so but it's still I loved in like the show this the the, the 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 whole idea that it's the negative spirit like the bad feeling that powers this character is really amazing. I mean the the image whether it's in the comics or the show the image of this fantastic being coming out of the bizarre body and the, and the physical form just sort of collapses on the ground. And I've always looked at the physical form collapsed on the ground as being like, this is the most vulnerable thing ever. Who, who would be okay with there being this inert body on the ground in the middle of a superhero fight? That just seems horribly vulnerable, but it's the only way that the negative, that the that the negative spirit can get anything done. And it's sort of like being like your vulnerability has to just be out there in order to be able to do these powerful things. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that is that is a powerful image and uh, a good point. And, and you know, I, the I think spirit... I'm sorry, but I, I I just think that it's an interesting kind of correlate to who Larry Trainer is now as a person because he's somebody who has to keep himself basically mummified every moment of his life because of his horrific burns and scars. So he's vulnerable physically, you know, 24 seven. And so then he just kind of has to jump into a superhero fight and trust this negative spirit is going to, you know, slay all comers um, or else he'll, you know, be kind of eviscerated by whatever donkey farts in his way. (laughs) I loved about the Doom Patrol, uh, um, Gerard Way, Nick Darrington, like the whole thing with the saying, like, you've got to get into the negative spirit. Um, I, I, there's just something I think about embracing your own difficulties and like saying that maybe it's okay to be depressed and disassociating. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. But um, like the whole like concept of getting into the negative spirit of things is like just an amazing f- turn of phrase. You, you kind of, yeah I, I I definitely see where you're coming from with that because like you have to there are times when you have to not worry about the reason for why you're feeling a certain way 
why you're feeling that bad because sometimes there is no reason there's no logical reason for it you just have to grab it and ride it through and and let it happen let that happen and 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 feel that feeling and know you know feel because it it's valid it ha you have to admit mm -hmm. its validity and not just you know get up and rub some dirt on it and keep going you know too bad the you thing, feel bad gotta go to work like in the comics that being in a negative spirit is something that's told to him externally but in the tv show nobody the, the spirit itself doesn't call itself the negative spirit yeah. larry or somebody is telling larry that it's the negative spirit so the negative is his view of himself some niles right? is calling it <laughs> yeah is a negative no is the, is it the negative spirit because it's his negative view of himself as an uncontrollable queer desire um you know, like, well, who named it the negative spirit, right? right? Which, which Niles Calder in his life named it the negative yeah. spirit? <laughs> which negative influence in his life? Yeah. But I, <laughs> I, but I think the, the emergence of your true self from within, you know, even if you hold that as negative, I think it definitely has a parallel between, you know, Larry Trainer, Rita Farr, and even Crazy Jane, because mm -hmm. in the second episode we do get into the underground, where all the negatives of her exist in this kind of like horrifying labyrinth uh, so you know there are these layers to the characters that have room to explore so we just kind of have to see if the show chooses to exploit those to their fullest extent one thing that note character note I liked that I think is from the show exclusively is Larry's orchid hobby People perceive raising orchids as being really challenging, and there are some kinds of orchids that are like can yeah. only be raised in a hot house. It's very hard to do, but like there's a lot of orchids that you can just grow in your living room. So you have these flowers that are perceived as being rare and challenging that can only be grown indoors and in private, and that's not really accurate. <laughs> uh, so he's like hiding himself, and he has this very precious hobby that can only be done indoors and closeted, and that's not really true about orchids and then jane comes along uh rips everything out of his bus and just leaves it by the side of the road i guess yeah. um that is from rebus by the way uh the, ah. the i i am like 99 percent sure that the orchids are uh are from from rebus hmm Let's talk about the uh, final scene that we have with Larry, where he is returning from this ex this uh, expedition they've had, this brief foray into being out in the world and heroing. Um, and he, the, the Lazarus, which is like the pivotal song really from Bowie's last album, Black Star, is playing as he unwraps his face. Um, and the lyric, one of the lyrics from Lazarus is, "I'll be free, ain't that just like me?" And in the the song and the reality Bowie is talking about physically dying and his spirit becoming free of his body. Um, and, you know, Larry has experienced this physical death himself and he's unwrapping where he, and, and, and in Lazarus, Bowie's face is wrapped in bandages as well. So oh, like this no. image of unwrapping in the video, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the music yeah. video for Lazarus, which everybody should go and watch right away. I, I've seen that frame. I've seen a capture of it and I know what you're referring to. Yeah, like it, yeah. the unwrapping and the bandages. It's such this perfect thing. Um, Want to weigh in on... Uh... Yeah, that was something that I... As soon as those lyrics came on and, and as soon as I heard that music, I, I had an involuntary reaction in my brain that was just, oh, this is perfect right here. 
So anything the the show does um, that might offend me or make me roll my eyes, it does have it does have this perfect moment. Um, because like I have a real. Um, at least in in my own brain, I I, I feel like I, I feel a profound what connection else you to got, John. Yeah, I, in in my heart and soul, I feel a profound connection to David, to David Bowie's music, mm-hmm. uh, and so I that Black Star album meant a lot to me for you know obviously because you know he died, um, but also you know for the the kind of profound sadness in it and in 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 the music, and so for the show to really utilize that song as this you know, man slash alien being is revealing himself to him to himself and to the audience. I I found uh, it really powerful, and so I a lot all the credit to, to that show for yeah. picking. Yeah, like when you have it, when you when your show has earned the right to use Bowie, <laughs> like to me that's that's a high thing. Because people, you know, it, 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 I felt like the show deserved it in that moment. That so. yeah, that was an excellently done scene and. I told you about this, Alana, but funny story. So I'm watching that scene, and uh, I have not heard any... I have yet to listen to Black Star or watch a video or anything. And um, and I heard that music start, uh, and in the captions it says uh, something like, Art Rock Plays. <laughs> and... Uh, and <laughs> And so I'm listening to it, and then the, the, the vocals come in. I'm like, man, somebody's doing a really good Bowie impression here. This is really something. I wonder who, you know, I, I wonder what this is. Uh, and then uh, I go to your show notes. Uh, you sent the show notes over, uh, and I'm looking at it. It's like, oh, wait, that was David Bowie. Oh, my God. There is now one less david bowie song i get to hear for the first time and and i was i broke into tears right there it was just this it was so sad and so perfect for that scene uh like you all were saying and it's it was just a it was an odd moment uh in in this in this life and uh but yeah it's a really well done scene and and that is a perfect song for it um so going to this this show is done with like a a music video director's eye and ear and uh and it should probably surprise nobody that clint mansell of uh of the fountain you know who did the soundtracks for the the scores for the fountain and for requiem for a dream and was in uh pop will eat its seminal industrial act pop will eat itself uh is is the music director uh or music co-director of mm-hmm. this of this show and of Titans as well, but uh, uh, and it's really it it's really something else, and I think that really he's so he is such a masterful composer and music director, uh, and and it really he's it really adds a it adds something to the show that no that I don't know if anybody else could, uh, like the way that the theme the way that the theme has this sort of. Uh, you know the same sort of orchestral and guitar and choral vocals thing that every uh, supernatural action show from 1990, you know, from the Crow onwards, has had uh, for the past 20 odd years. And then the the closing theme is a, an 80s synths horror echo of it, 
uh, if you go back and listen to those two, I mean, it's it's the exact same, uh, it's the exact same piece, but with these driving '80s, Jason's gonna stab you synths. Um, so they and like the music choices, uh, like the uh, like you were saying, the the sweet track, and uh, there's that scene where Jane is driving the bus into town with with the uh, with the other three, and. Uh, to total colo i don't know the i don't know how to pronounce this but um the track being used uh while the bus goes to town is i eat cannibals by total coelho uh mm -hmm. i don't know if you've ever heard that one but it's it's a mm -hmm. it's really it's a good track for jane uh it's just sort of weird it's it's this weird oingo boingo-esque off the wall track and uh the music choices are masterful in the show um i can't complain you know can't complain about that for sure so let's finish talking about crazy jane a little bit and then we'll sure on rita yeah um go ahead I, I, it seems like a lot of folks have a lot of crazy jane thoughts and feelings oh um i mean that i i think you know i think i got a lot of my crazy jane stuff out earlier uh like i this is one of those things that she's gonna be a tough topic uh she's gonna be really hard to do well in the long, you know, over the course of the series, because uh, she is based. Uh, Morrison created her for his run, and she's based on uh, the Trudy Chase case from the, the known from the book When Rabbit Howls. And uh, this is a woman who was sexually abused from the age of three onwards, and her personality fragmented. Uh, she like repeatedly, and uh, and there's famously uh, like the other you know was never and famously was never debunked uh she died in 2010 uh you know and and her the the civil you know three faces of civil was eventually debunked like the civil in question uh confessed to having made it all up but trudy chase was the real deal um and uh and that's something I again I don't know if this team is going to be able to do that well uh, to deal with that violation and that trauma and that story and do it in a non uh, do it in a sensitive way because um, when Morrison had a like when Morrison approached this character you know had a better way of dealing with this character of portraying this character than the writers on this show do 20 odd years later that doesn't give me great hope or 30 mm. years later actually uh that doesn't mm -hmm. give me great hope for the future but uh you know i think they're gonna deal with the underground sooner than later uh so we'll see very soon there was at least the line i think it was from robot man you know what does it take for a girl to break herself into so many pieces mm -hmm. or something yeah. like that so it, the show is acknowledging that this person has Absolutely. suffered probably more trauma than any of the other characters and, and why and yeah. we should not hate her we need to be her friend yeah. and, and help her so i'm i'm hoping that for the show and something... from a design standpoint the whole i the whole thing with like her, her sort of space around her rippling mm -hmm. every time she changes personas is a good way to make sure that the audience like doesn't miss that this is happening. Yeah, um, you, there are no visual. There, there would be no visual cues otherwise, because uh, other than the transformations for some of her personalities. 
The uh, one where she, metal word, where the metal words oh, shoot those, out of her that mouth was great. in graffiti shapes. That was pretty and, like, cool. And like punch the wall. I don't remember that character's name, but that was so fucking cool. That was like the coolest uh, super tongue. power thing. Silver tongue. Jesus. Silver tongue or something like that. Yeah, that was a really well done. That was a really good design element. Um, and I think I actually think she may be uh, new for the show. Uh, I. Hmm. I would have to go back and reread every single panel of the <laughs> of the book, twist my arm. But um, yeah, but that I, was something I, that definitely surprised me because that was a power that I was not expecting to see because yeah. I did not see it in the comics. Yeah, I don't remember it from the I don't remember it from the book at all. Um, but the other thing that came up, uh, there are a num there are an increasing number of people. Uh, out there on the internet who identify as systems um, who, who you know who are functional adult beings who uh, who identify uh, as this is a, you know, who have DID or have been diagnosed or self-diagnosed with DID and so uh, I do have to wonder what they think of this of uh, this representation because uh, it it is not DID shows up a lot more in fiction than it is diagnosed for mm-hmm. sure, um, but it is a thing that exists. So I have to wonder what uh, someone who is diagnosed with DID thinks of this. Um, it it is certainly you know the powers certainly are fantastical, but uh, you know the different personalities and the way they get along, and that's something that is gonna that has to shake out over the course of the series like how do these 64 personalities get in one body get along with each other you know what what is someone who actually has to go through that think of this um what is it you know is any representation yeah. good representation but i i did really like at least to show how difficult it would be to live like this person is when robot man makes her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich mm-hmm. you know he's trying to process allergic yeah yeah 12 of us are allergic to peanut butter and two of us have a gluten intolerance and yet he is trying robot man is trying to use her as a cipher for his own daughter mm-hmm. but it is a sweet moment where he's trying to help her yeah. and you get to see how difficult it would be for if one of the dominant personalities Jane is expressing at that moment is a very angry one yeah she can't she can't even eat because yeah. her dietary needs are different for every personality, yeah. so she could starve to death if she's not taken care of properly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there is that. That was a good scene. Um, the thing with Cliff and Jane and the dad feels uh, of this. There's going to be a lot of dad feels in this show uh, between Cliff and Jane. They've Where stayed... would superheroes be if we had no daddy issues? Well, <laughs> I the. There's something. There is something that bothers that, or not bothers me, but it. Mm-hmm. Uh, dad feels are the new romance, as uh, you know. Daddy daughter feels are the new romance, as uh, writers in Hollywood and in you know in in media get older. Because I think it was Lee Alexander. Uh, I don't know if y'all are familiar with her, but she was a video game writer for a while, and now she's just uh, a culture writer, just a culture writer. Um, hmm. 
but she pointed out at one point that like you're starting to see instead of in video games over the past 10 years or so you've started to see more of the cute daughter that needs to be rescued rather than the hot girl who needs to be rescued because these men are because these boys are growing up and have it getting married and having children and some of them are by some you know by some of them have to be daughters it's statistics um and so that's how they're they're sort of like that's how that's a gender thing and i don't know like you know i don't uh I don't know quite where to go with that, but it is, it's weird. The way daughters are sort of held up as a grail, the way, uh, the, the, uh, the, the girl you, the woman you want to, you know, marry or at least have sex with was held up as a grail, uh, previously is strange. Um, you know the way daddy feels are ex- dad feels are expressed in these shows is strange and i in and in this show especially cliff isn't the only one who's a parent you do have larry with two kids two sons in the, a man with two sons in the 50s and he's showing no dad feel no residual dad feels whatsoever so far what's going on with that why why is that that is that a failure is that just something we haven't seen yet or is that a failure in the writing i mean when i talked about this with my housemate they were like oh you know people in the 50s didn't care about their kids which i think is highly funny uh partially possibly partially true but highly reductive yeah. um so i think just sort of like you're really kind of, like I need to see I need to see more of Larry's background. Yeah, I, I think if see, yeah, if I can offer a no, pop culture please. psychology theory, um, the the generation that is writing fiction now is a generation that grew up watching The Simpsons, and that is a show who who <laughs> engineered like half its episodes on the fact that this girl is the heart and soul of the family, and through her is the redemption of this gruff crass man-child and so yeah so i so i think that if if anyone of these writers is like me you spent countless countless hours watching the simpsons and seeing that narrative pay off over and over again and it has maybe consciously subconsciously wormed its way into your wormed its way into your creative process it would be interesting to see for larry trainer's future development if maybe his sons died and the chief just, kept that a secret. Yeah, how he feels oh, yeah. about that family he left behind, period. Not just the lover that he couldn't be with, um, but the, you know, the rest. What if Larry, you know, here's a, here's one. Why can't Larry be bisexual? Mm. You know? Well, why can't because we he know have, nobody is bisexual There's no such bisexuals. There's no such thing as bisexuals. Especially not men. Never happens. Yeah, we not even bring... Freddie Mercury can be bisexual. Oh no, yeah, definitely no, we can't not. bring bisexual, uh, you know, such phantoms as bisexual men into this, you know, complex realistic world of jet-powered apes and time travel. So, <laughs> but I, I, I do um, think there is room. Da- yeah, sorry. No, there's. I do room think there. Yeah, I think there is room in that for Larry Trainer because he's somebody yeah. who, even with the narration from Mister Nobody, says he was running from both his. Mm-hmm. wife and his lover 
And so he was equally broken up by that fleeing from both of them. So there is room for to show him having love for both of them, even in retrospect. Let's talk about Rita Farr. So Rita Farr is a character who uh, I mostly know from appearances in Silver Age stuff, appearances in other media, like the Young Justice and cartoons and stuff. And a little bit of Doom Patrol when it crossed over, modern Doom Patrol when it crosses over with other shows I've liked. Um, so right. in my past readings of Rita Farr, I have not seen her dealt with as body horror that much, generally because her, and when I've seen her, elastic powers are mostly stretchy and she mm. sort of returns to her normal form. And there are people out in the world who might regard her as horrific, but she doesn't seem to find herself as such. In this show, the leading thing with Rita is that she is experiencing the horror of having an unruly female body. Yep. You know, her body wants to eat. Her body demands she eats all the food. She is self-conscious about it. Her body becomes a literal blob. And, you know, like her shame at having to eat, she, she, she like looks really embarrassed in the Doom Patrol appearance in Teen Titans where she says, I'm famished. And she sort of delicately covers her mouth while she's eating. And one way to look at this is that this is a Hollywood actress's fear of being fat that what's horrific to her is being bigger and that's pretty realistic of the way a lot of women are raised to think about themselves and the fat hatred that is really permeates our society and that we need to fight because it's bullshit and it's this contrast because there's this not only is her body when she's not in out of when she's not expressing her powers, her body is very pointy and bony. And there's a sharpness to her physicality and to her personality in the show. Like she is a bitch. Um, (laughs) And she's a bitch prior to getting her powers. And um, so I feel like in some ways the show presents her getting her powers as being like something she deserved, like karma. She's getting her just desserts. She's an asshole. So she deserves to have her pristine hyper feminine body made unruly by powers beyond her control and that's kind of fucked up but it is a really glorious contrast to see in in her opening introduction she is on a movie set uh in africa in where it's just called something about the congo though it doesn't mean it was shot there forbidden and she's complaining congo. forbidden congo yeah i and think she's so yeah shown complaining about having to look at a focus puller who's working on the movie who is black and it doesn't have one of his arms. And she's complaining about how distracting it is to see him there. I kept one point I was thinking as an aside was, I wonder if there's any black focus pullers who are employed on the production of Doom Patrol, because I'm going to guess not. Uh, Camera crews are disturbingly white and disturbingly male. But anyway, so she's complaining about this. And then uh, everybody else on the film set is sort of recoiling from her. I don't know if anybody else was worried that maybe the show was implying that what happens to her was a result of like, African magic or something like that or if well, folks, uh, I don't know. I uh, I thought <laughs> it was it her whatever happened to her was enacted by the African crew. I don't know if it was African voodoo or, or whatever the show was implying, but I th- I thought some somebody on the crew did something to infect her with whatever makes her elastic girl. So it's not made clear in the show. I don't feel visually it's made clear what happened to her uh, at all. Like, it could be interpreted as, ooh, voodoo curse. Or it could, like, something, 
on the second viewing it's a lot clearer uh something goes she inhales something while underwater uh something goes into her mouth while underwater is it a spirit is it a gas bubble it's really made it's really not made clear nobody's behavior after the accident when she's melting or after the event i should say when she's melting nobody looks at her like yeah you got yours now like everybody's horrified by the effects so like i i see where i very much see where you're coming from and in the so i went back this morning and i read the first the issue of my greatest adventure where doom patrol where the doom patrol uh origins are shown and um it's not a voodoo curse in the comic she like has a very similar accident to the one in the the one in the show and she falls down a waterfall and inhales some sort of strange gas and a quote native witch doctor identifies what happened to identifies what happened to her right but it's not it's not a result of of her character it's not a result it's just a thing that happened to a beautiful starlet and in the comics her powers are basically the incredible growing and shrinking woman like i don't know if the elastic girl stuff like the stretchy stuff comes till later um but in the in that first episode it's just or in that first story it's just she gets big she gets small and i would like to take this opportunity to talk about how these characters are ec comics characters ec comics horror stories brought into the dc universe you know the robot man the with uh you know his brain survives inside a robot the incredible shrinking woman uh, shrinking and growing woman the possess you know the the possessed burn victim these stories are all very easy have the potential to be moralist in that ec comics way and i think they took that opportunity they didn't do it with larry and they didn't do it well i guess they kind of did uh the robot man yeah yeah with wrote with uh with cliff uh you know he got what he deserved for being a jerk you know with larry he got what he deserved for being a hypocrite as mr nobody says in the second episode uh mm. and rita got what she deserved for being a bitch yeah, this and is I the think, e- this is uh, the ec comics mode not the dc comics mode that they've decided to run with i think rita exemplifies that mm-hmm. most symmetrically because she's the one who is revolted by the physical damaged body mm-hmm. of you know a an employee of the movie studio and as a result her body is then the result of the 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 object of revulsion for yeah. herself and everybody around her so yeah. i think it's a, a, mo- a much more direct cosmic comeuppance for her yeah but each of them sort I of love gets the their line. karmic reward yeah i i love the line um if i could run from me right now i would that she says in the show yeah that was a great line yeah yeah. Oh dear God. Yeah. And the other great piece she has is I forget who it is. I think it's Cyborg says, I've seen what you can do with your body. And she says, No, you've seen what my body does. Yeah. And, like does to me. Yeah. Um and so he's viewing what she's doing as a power that can be really impressive. And to her it's just a loss of control of herself um that is 
Like you said earlier, Cyborg is going to kind of, or like John said earlier, Cyborg is going to kind of take that leader role where, uh, you know, what they all see as their, uh, as their setbacks, as their uh, disabilities, he sees as their power, as their special ability, as mm -hmm. the thing that makes them potential, as gives them the potential for greatness. Um, you know, and and Rita is the first step in that. And like you said, I I've seen what your, I've seen what you can do with your body, um, which is kind of filthy. Oh. Well, I, I think <laughs> I, I think the collision of Cyborg and the Doom Patrol is interesting because yeah. at a couple moments in, in the second episode, it's made it clear that Vic, because of his father, um, has an end goal of joining the, the, joining Justice, the Justice League, League. Yeah. whereas the Doom Patrol wants to not be noticed. So if there yeah. ever is a diametrically opposed uh, purpose for superpowers, it's joining the Justice League and staying and underground. not being noticed. Yes. Yeah. In the X-Men, you have these outsiders who are united by the fact that they all got their powers because of genetics, you know, by, by pure chance, not because of their own actions, and who have a community and a culture that they build around themselves. And the difference with, uh, with Doom Patrol is that each one of these heroes is an outlier. Each one of these heroes isn't part of an out, can't really join an outside culture or community except for each other. So I think in a lot of ways, it's a very different take on the, you know, Jay Edidin, who's like one of my total comics analysis heroes had said on um, his show, Jay Edidin explained the X-Men that that the X-Men are actually better as a disability metaphor, disability rights metaphor, than they are as a queer metaphor. Uh, Jay being queer, I feel, can make these points, certainly. Sure. Um, and, that, and, and so if we're looking at the X-Men as um, a disability metaphor that actually does succeed a lot of the time, um, you know, where do we, how do we feel about, like, you know, the chief is someone who is playing this paternalistic guy who's taking care of a home full of, wayward, confused, challenged people who can't survive out there, which sort of mirrors the traditional institutionalized mode of how the world used to handle folks with, with disabilities that we now know is like really fucking bad and harmful. Um, I mean, how does this metaphor sit with people? Well, the chief's wrong, isn't he? Yes. The, one of the themes of the show, and I feel like a little bit less so for the comics, but very much for the show, is you have a team who you know the the question is like it's are a they team a team of, of heroes not just that are they a team of heroes um are they a team of victims are they a team of people who had different expectations for their bodies than society had for their bodies okay i think i think the chief certainly wants them to feel like they're a team of victims and that yes. he is their only salvation and that through him they can find some place in the world um, most preferably under his own scalpel um, but I think may, maybe at some point they can become a team of outcast heroes. Uh, certainly not the kind of world-saving uh, superhuman messiahs that the X-Men sometimes are, are seen as. Um, but, but definitely a team of outcasts, I think. So I am not as deep into X-Men analysis as you are, Alana, or certainly not as deep as Jay Edidin is um i think uh people talk about the x-men as family a lot like and maybe that's true of the core team 
but like mutants as a whole are a community not a family um and i think the doom patrol because it's such a small group works better as a family more uh as a family metaphor uh and they are less uh so uh, you know as they are not a community as such they are less freaks defending a world that hates and fears them as they are non-normative people uh they're they're not necessarily superheroes they're superhero they're heroes of necessity uh but generally they're just outliers non-normative people learning how to live and be their best selves in a world that doesn't understand or appreciate outliers and that's harder in a big superhero universe where like you know uh i think this was made clear in the titans episode where it's like you know oh beast boy you cannot leave the house you have green hair yeah so does my 14 year old cousin you know they can <laughs> they can go hang out at at the arcade or the roller rink or whatever uh thing that does not exist anywhere but the dc universe anymore um they they they're they're not superheroes in the way we think of super they're not a superhero team in the way that we think of them as a superhero team and when they try to function as a superhero team that way, deliberately, they fall down. Like, that's shown right there in the end of the first episode. You know, what are you going to do? Punch the hole? Like, And I, and I think in, in that way, they're almost an exact, like, mirror or negative image of the Fantastic yeah. Four, who yeah. are a family... Um, who only succeed when they come together, as opposed to Doom Patrol, who fail when they come together, and who seek the spotlight and love it and and kind of are energized by it, while Doom Patrol keep um, doing their best to avoid avoid the spotlight. Things happen to the Doom Patrol. They do not make things happen necessarily, or they don't. Their intent. They don't make things happen intentionally, uh, and that that's not a negative. But that's who they are. That they are people trying to make their way in the world. Uh, where the Fantastic Four and the X-Men are people trying to make a world. Mm. I really think the Fantastic Four is an amazing metaphor that I would love to talk about in future coverage. Oh yeah, that's a di- again, that's a whole different podcast. Yeah. I, I really think, but no, but I mean Fantastic Four versus Doom Patrol. Especially oh, versus Doom because, Patrol, for sure. Especially because in a lot of the DC animated universe, they really lean into the family piece of it with Rita Farr basically being the foster mother to, to mm-hmm. Beast Boy. Um, and Rita Farr's powers basically being Mr. Fantastic's powers. Uh, so I would love to talk about that at a later date. Thank you for bringing sure. that, John. Yeah. So, I, okay. oh, oh, just one one quick thing. Um, I thought the mm-hmm. uh, when they first enter the donkey's hole, um, <laughs> which that that was a little much for me. I I kind of got the impression that when they saw the kind of the stick figure paintings of the citizens of Cloverton, that was a direct reference to the. Painted that ate Paris yeah. story from the Grant Morrison run. So that was an Easter egg that I actually really enjoyed. I, uh, you know, over, uh, I, I hope that, uh, all I, all I have to say to wrap it up is I hope that over the course of the, the course of this discussion, I've shown that I, I don't, I don't hate the Doom Patrol. I just might hate Doom Patrol the sh- or dislike Doom Patrol the show. Um, I feel like, uh, DC has always had trouble understanding. Uh, what's really driving their 
uh, their characters and their IP, and I feel like this is consistent with that. And uh, I f wish they were, you know, there's so much that can be done with the Doom Patrol, and I really wish they were brave enough to do more with it, especially outside the restrictions of advertising TV, but it looks like they just keep falling. I wish they w could do more than just cusses, farts, and a single bear titty. Uh, I mean, they seem very proud of themselves for having cast a gay man as a gay man. Like, oh, from the press good junket, job. they're, like, so proud of themselves. Huzzah! Yeah, if they can manage to not cast him as a trans woman, then, or a, or a trans... Or non-binary, uh, yeah. ...intersex person, then, or, then, uh, or magical intersex person, <laughs> uh, then, you know, that could be a miracle on par with, uh, you know, anything that Scott Free has pulled off. So, <laughs> ha-cha-cha-cha-cha, and that's the show, folks. <laughs> Yes. So thank you for listening to Graphic Policy Radio. You can find me on Twitter all the damn time at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. GraphicPolicy.com is our website for comics, news, and reviews. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. And actually, Brett's been uploading this to YouTube lately. So if you prefer to stream things there, you can do that. Um, chances are the next episode you'll be hearing from us is our look at uh, Punisher Season 2. And thank you again to our guests. As we like to say, keep it geeky. <laughs>